Hello and welcome to the Sports Loft Podcast, the first one recorded in 2024. So happy new year to our listeners out there. Today, we are super excited to be taking the investor view with a slight difference. We are going to be speaking to the incomparable Jasmine Robinson from the Monarch Collective. And we will be asking her about everything to do with Monarch, the investment landscape, and women's sports. But before we get into that, I would like to welcome my co-host and Sports Loft grandee supremo extraordinaire, Charlie Greenwood. Charlie, how was the break? Uh, it seems like a long time ago. You really have sw- swallowed a thesaurus for this afternoon's uh length of introductions. Parsimony has never been an accusation leveled at me, Charlie. You know this well. So before we dive uh, into the conversation with our guest, allow me uh, a little bit of time just to run through her incredible background. Jasmine is managing partner at the Monarch Collective, which is a fund uh, that was raised at the end of, launched at the end of 2023 in order to invest in women's sports teams and leagues. Jasmine partnered with uh, Cara Nortman, who who co-founded the NWSL club Angel City FC. And uh, Jasmine is a friend of Sportsloft, being on the advisory board and also uh, having been on the podcast before. Uh, she was previously at Causeway, a growth stage VC fund focused on uh, sports, fitness, media, and gaming, and has a decorated history uh, before that as well, which we can get into uh, during the course of the conversation. Uh, so we're super excited to have her on board to talk about all things media, sports, entertainment, and technology focused, and especially women's sports, which are booming right now. Jasmine, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Always, always fun to chat with both of you. So um, rather than my rather potted and poor history and background, why don't we start by asking you to give us a little bit of a background to Monarch Collective how it came about and what you guys are looking at. And we can talk about your first investments as well, which were quite an exciting one announced at the end of last year. Absolutely. Yeah. So Kara and I have been working on Monarch Collective uh, probably about a year and a half now. Uh, We ended up uh, kicking off fundraising in early January of last year and then have now made our first investment. Um, Really our vision for Monarch Collective really came about, I think Kara and I came at it from sort of two different angles. I think Kara's thesis and vision around the opportunity in women's sports really came from the bottoms up view that she had from founding uh, Angel City and really like going through the process of building and launching that team. Um, For me, it was a little bit more of a, a macro thesis driven view coming at it from the top down where as I was spending time looking at investment opportunities through Causeway, um, this sort of theme of women's sports kept arising for me. Obviously, I've always been a huge women's sports fan, um, but starting to hear when I'm talking to brands and media companies, I was hearing them bring up what their strategy was in women's sports. And it felt like, you know, having studied the growth and evolution of some of the sports leagues like uh, the NFL or the um, UFC or others that have kind of hit that inflection point and really grow grew. I felt like women's sports was hitting that moment where we're going to see sort of really strong growth going forward. And yet there weren't really any funds out there that were focused on investing in women's sports, which was really shocking to me. And so sort of seeing that gap in the market, I thought, you know, this is something that that really I should go out and build. And around that time got connected to Kara and she was thinking about the same thing in parallel. So came together to uh, form Monarch Collective um, we've now raised $150 million to go after this investment opportunity. 
um, really to invest across women's sports teams, leagues, and then rights. Um, and so on the right side, those are sort of some of the proven rights areas on the men's sports side of things that maybe aren't being well commercialized by uh, the incumbent uh, commercial organization on the, organizations on the women's side. Um, and we've made our first investment, as you alluded to. Uh, we invested in the Boston NWSL Expansion Club, you know, incredible team and market and league to, to be involved with. And really, we think about being super hands-on partners where we make an investment. So really building, you know, making five or six investments with this fund, being hands-on partners to those places where we're investing. And so it's been really fun uh, working with that team to, to start building what will uh, be a new entrant to the NWSL in 2026. Very exciting stuff. And uh, we'll definitely dive into how that investment came together and um, how you guys made it and what you looked at uh, in order to in order to get that expansion franchise. Um, as you know, one of the things that we always ask everybody on the podcast is their favorite sporting moment of the week. Um, now, obviously, you uh, you could stretch a little bit back and uh, talking about NCAA women's basketball and talk about Caitlin Clark's incredible uh, buzzer beater a couple of weeks ago in the uh, in the football setting, which was uh, which was one of my personal highlights, at least of the um, of the vacation. But uh, wanted to throw it over to you with that background and with that uh, kind of experience. What is your favorite sports moment of the past week? But given that we've just come back from break, there might be a little bit of flexibility in that time frame. Yeah, uh, so it's been a bit of a rough sports week for me. So this time of year, I'm usually watching NFL football and then Stanford women's basketball. And so uh, being out here in the Miami area, uh, my Dolphins uh, lost in the NFL playoffs this week and then uh, Stanford lost as well. So a uh, tough weekend, but I'll go with that uh, in that Stanford game, Cameron Brink, who's um, going to be one of the top draft picks in the WNBA whenever she does declare, uh, hit the thousand rebound mark. Um, she's been really, really fun to watch. And it's really exciting to watch what she's doing, not only on the court, but off the court as well, with really interesting collaboration with New Balance and other great brand partners. Uh, so it's definitely uh, a fun thing to, to watch and observe right now as women's basketball continues to grow. And definitely, uh, definitely, sort of another harbinger of this the the success and investability of women's sports. Um, uh, focusing that going forward, which is exciting. Charlie, uh, I'm presuming this is going to somehow involve wolves, but I'll just I'll just let you get on with it. Actually, no, I'm I'm not going to involve wolves this time. Um, so this time, I'm not going to go for a favorite moment. This isn't a favorite, but I think it's actually quite a revealing an important one um so was it yesterday that uh everton and nottingham forest got referred for the uh let's they basically been charged by the premier league and the fact that both of them have been charged you know the rules are there and you can argue whether they went over them or, or not if they both get points docked we could end up with two of the three slots for the premier league relegation actually being decided by basically financial charges not actually on pitch performance which is going to suddenly massively change i think people's feelings around the um sporting integrity uh, that's there but also you're going to end up having fans having as many conversations around financial fair play as to whether the center forward's any good or not and i think the i think what's really interesting with this is also now you've got everton being charged twice nottingham forest as well 
there was an article on the BBC website the other day going through about five or six different clubs who might have been at threat of financial fair play issues. It's actually becoming such a part of the the ongoing drama of the Premier League now is actually financial fair play. And I think that's really interesting how that's changing it. I don't think it's going to be changing it for the better. Um, but it's interesting to see how that's playing out. Uh, interesting choice of favourite moment of the uh, of the week. but <laughs> It's certainly not a favourite, but I was thinking of something that I think is important, and I think that will, I'll go for that one. It's uh, it, it it is very important, and it will um, obviously still some uh, still some uh, uh, regulatory and financial fair play uh, investigations hanging over multiple teams in the Premier League, not least of which is uh, is Manchester City, as we know, who have uh, I think something something close to a uh, hundred times the number of uh, cases open to get or uh, active investigations compared to Everton and Nottingham Nottingham Forest. So it's going to be very interesting to watch that play out over the next uh, over the next few weeks and months. So turning our attention back to um, uh, Jasmine, the Monarch Collective, and women's sports. Jasmine, first of all, I'm I'm, I'm curious to talk a little bit about the. Um, that process of fundraising last year, specifically as it relates to building a fund focused on women's sports, because obviously um, we've had a lot of attention over the course of the past, you know, I'd say uh, two to three years, focusing on women's sports um, and, and, and seeing the opportunity. We've now seen other funds pop up as well. Uh, focused on uh, focused on women's sports and specifically women's football uh, or soccer um, for those North American listeners. Um, so, how did you find the process of of fundraising and um, uh, specifically with the lens of a, a lot of a lot of people um, historically would have said, "Oh, yes, you know, it's great to support women's sports, but ultimately the game is not exciting enough. It doesn't attract enough fans. Did you see any of that in the fundraising process or have you seen sort of a sea change in the attitudes um, of uh, of investors and people willing to put their money where their mouth is? Uh, it was really interesting because I think there was an evolution throughout the fundraising process. I think uh, the good news at the start is that Kara and I both had built deep networks, both operating in sports and then track records around investing. And so through sort of some of our close relationships, we were able to get some good, strong traction from people just who knew us and trusted our judgment around this opportunity in women's sports. Um, but I'd say in the early days when we were talking to net new folks who we were building, uh, just starting to build relationships with, I think there was definitely some hesitancy. You know, we'd hear, you know, oh, well, do people really want to watch women's basketball? Like women don't dunk. And so it's not that interesting or you know, people would be sort of pushing back in, in, in I think, unique ways around, uh, you know, is this really a product that people want in a world of scarce attention? Will people really watch women's sports? Um, but one of the fun things that kind of happened through that time period is you started to see um, sort of more incredible uh, records get set. So, you know, we heard a lot about, you know, is basketball really investable until um, the crazy viewership of the NCAA Women's Championship game. And from there, everyone was like, oh, yeah, of course, of course, women's basketball is in investable in a really exciting area. And so I think it was great to see um, new records set around sort of media rights deals getting done, viewership, fan attendance, and really monetization. And that really sort of changed the tenor of the fundraise over the six months or so when we were raising the fund. Um, so by the end, I think we were seeing a lot more demand than uh, we could even uh, sort of service with our funds that we had originally targeted raising 100 million, we ended up going up to 150. And 
and stopping, not because there wasn't more demand, but just because we wanted to really have a focused pool of capital to go after this opportunity and not get too big for where the market is today. Um, how are you looking at the women's sports um, landscape, and are you uh, are you looking at uh, uh, are you looking at new opportunities? Are you looking at uh, existing things? Are you looking at building from scratch uh, at the at the league level? I'm fascinated to see how you're looking at the uh, how you're looking at the landscape and where you see opportunities. Um, so, I mean, I think this dovetails a little bit into fund strategy uh, around how we build our portfolio, because that really does in some ways inform the way we think about this. So, as I mentioned earlier, we really thought when we got started, Kara and I are both operators and investors, and we like being able to engage in both of those ways. And so we felt like, let's build a really concentrated portfolio of opportunities um, where we can actually, the two of us, be hands-on, not build a large team who's going to help to do that where we can really engage. And so um, really wanted to build a super concentrated portfolio and these opportunities where we were really high conviction around the opportunity. Mm. Um, and to do that, you have to go into opportunities where you feel like there's strong downside protection. Um, so we don't really have room for any of our investments to go to zero if we're making you know, six investments um, and to be able to drive returns in this space. And so I think that informs a little bit of where we focus. So you, know, you alluded to, we've talked most about established sports and that's not by chance. I think when we think about where we focus, it's really um, our bar is kind of like, this should be an opportunity that can generate strong sponsorship revenue and media rights revenue before it's something that we would uh, would sort of hit our stage dynamic. Um, and so that leaves us really focused on um, the football ecosystem across uh, the UK and the US and a little bit in other parts of Europe, um, as well as uh, women's basketball, women's tennis, women's golf. Um, so those are some of the spaces where we're spending time because we just think those are the most mature components of the market today. Um, and I think from my time uh, at my previous fund, Causeway, we spent a lot of time looking at these sort of more what I call emerging sports leagues. Um, now, some people would put the NWSL or WNBA in that bucket, but I actually think they're quite different because they're generating real meaningful media rights revenue. And, and that really just changes the fundamental P&L of the leagues and teams. And I think when you get into more emerging, um, there's a bit of a uh, it's a bit harder to, to pick. You know, when is the when is this going to hit the inflection point when it really can start doing that? And actually, then the economics change dramatically. And so um, that's really where we think there's the most opportunity because we think it's um, really strong downside protection. But also, by the way, because the women's sports market is so, um, you know, the penetration of the existing fan base is still somewhat limited. There's still opportunities to go and drive venture like returns despite that downside dynamic. So, Jasmine, on um, on a previous podcast, we we were fortunate to have uh, Paul Hogan of um, RSV uh, was on, was on the podcast, and he talked about um, what he talked about a lot of the the tailwinds in women's sport. I'm I guess that you know you are very much a subscriber to that theory, but for you, what what do those tailwinds actually turn into in terms of very specific and actual things that that you're seeing? Because um, it, it makes sense, but what's the actual specifics of them? Yeah, so I think I like to think about uh, the like building sports fandom is really this sort of um, flywheel that works together. So as you get into some of these sports where you have strong media rights revenue coming in, uh, that content's going to be easier to find for your average fan. People are going to tune in and realize that they like the content or you're going to tell your friend, hey, come watch this with me. Um, and that's going to add to the fan base. 
And then, you know, that really happens exponentially. And so the way I think about those tailwinds is like, you know, strong tailwinds around brands really understand that the audience is already there in women's sports. Uh, there's a strong fan base. They're more likely to um, buy from companies that sponsor women's sports. So there's some really interesting dynamics there. Um, and then media companies are there saying this is actually content people want to watch. Uh, in the U.S., the NCAA rights just got sold. Uh, and women's basketball was a really big component of driving what I think was a really nice uh, win for the NCAA across rights value there. And that's going to make it easier to watch not only women's basketball, but women's volleyball and women's softball and other sports. Um, and that really creates uh, strong, strong growth across the fan base. I think it's really like the, uh, you know, we talk a lot about network effects and in tech investing, but this is like the real world network effects where you go in and grab a friend and say, hey, you got to see, uh, you know, what, what Cameron Brink's doing out on the basketball court. And that really like uh, starts to spread exponentially. And are you seeing those same, I mean, you mentioned looking at so soccer on both the US and the UK, and but are you seeing a, a lot of those same tailwinds internationally? Um, or are you seeing like at the US at a slightly different development, but actually maybe potentially more growth opportunities uh, internationally? And obviously, I'm thinking of things like the Women's Super League uh, here in the UK as well. Yeah, I think I'm very bullish on uh, where the Women's Super League is headed. I think uh, incredible new leader in in Nikki and um, I think just a, a really big opportunity. You know, we do a lot of comparing and contrasting what's happening in the NWSL in the US and WSL in the UK. And um, it's interesting because I think there are some ways where the NWSL is further ahead and then there are some ways where the WSL is further ahead. And so I think there's a lot of learnings that uh, can be shared back and forth to to make both of those leagues as successful as possible. So I'd say we're definitely seeing the both the tailwinds in the UK market around the WSL, but also, um, you know, sort of the maturity level that we need to see. So I'd say that's an area that we are uh, actively having a number of discussions around potential investment opportunities. Hmm. Um, I think, you know, once you move beyond some of those leagues, I think you're seeing a lot of the tailwinds globally around women's sports, but I think um, you're not also necessarily seeing the level of maturity that you'd want to see, sort of save for uh, a couple other examples globally. And talk a little bit about the same the same question mark from the fundraising perspective. That is, you were out in the market since uh, you said about January of of 2023. Um, you were oversubscribed and eventually had to uh, had to say no, thank you at, at 150 million. What um, what is the makeup of the uh, of the people who've invested um, geographically and their expertise with sports in general, and then specifically with women's sports? Um, how how's, how how did that play out for you? So I'd say primarily our investor base uh, came from the U.S., and I think that was a little bit just sort of naturally where both my and Kara's uh, networks are. Um, but we do have some representation in Europe as well as Asia. Um, but one of the things that we really focused on in bringing together that investor base was um, like, we think one of the ways that you win in the women's sports ecosystem is through representation. You know, I think one of the things that Angel City did really well was build this really female-led cap table that um, really gave this sort of authentic tie for the athletes, for the fans um, to, uh, to build and scale the team. And I think in women's sports, that sort of level of authenticity and passion is really important. And so when we're thinking about investing in teams, we think about how can we get on the cap table, 
cap tables that are being built with representation in mind, thinking about sort of greater gender and racial, uh, sexual orientation, sort of like all these dimensions of um, of diversity in addition to sort of diversity of thought, um, first and foremost. And so when we thought about how do we build our LP base, we thought, you know, we need to build with that same sort of idea of representation in mind as well, um, because it doesn't really uh, help if it's Kara and I leading the fun, but sort of the same, uh, you know, but, but not having diversity baked into that investor base. So two thirds of our investors are women or people from underrepresented groups. Um, they are generally made up of uh, family offices, institutional capital, as well as uh, individuals. Um, and we've built a really fun uh, network of individual LPs. So everyone from Billie Jean King uh, to Caleb Williams, the, the USC quarterback, to so folks who are sort of in that athlete bucket, through to great operators like Sarah Hardin, who's the CEO of Hello Sunshine, Reese Witherspoon's media company, um, to Layla Sturdy, who runs Google Ventures and, and sort of the large tech space. So we really tried to build a great group of people who, you know, when the Boston NWSL team is thinking about content strategy, like Sarah is a great resource to help them think that through as an example. So really helping um, to build that LP base in a really thoughtful way. And how have you guys, how have you guys kind of balanced that out between you? Because you obviously both, both yourself and Kara have excellent networks and, and great track record. Um, how, how do you work between yourselves and, and how do you pull on that network of LPs and advisors uh, in order to get the most out of the investments that you're looking at and then the actual operations once you get, once you get to that point? Yeah. Um, I think Karen and I do a, a good job of dividing and conquering. And so um, while we both do kind of everything, um, I'd say that Kara very much runs point on sort of uh, fundraising, you know, I think the, the old adage that you're sort of always fundraising. So even though the funds close, we're always building new relationships. And so she's leading a lot of that sort of outbound effort um, while I'm leading a little bit more of our sort of thesis-driven investing uh, insights and where we want to actually deploy capital as well as how are we supporting portfolio companies post-investment. Um, but we also are sort of both deep on all those topics. So uh, we both have deep relationships with all of our LPs across our investor base. And we can go, each of us can go and sort of pull pull those folks in to engage. Um, so yeah, we try to do a little bit of dividing and conquering. But yeah, when we were fundraising, I think we were both just working like uh, 80 hours a week and um, deeply involved in doing uh, and having every conversation. So it's nice to be uh, through through that piece of it. Jasmine, when you when you we were out fundraising, and I was the the message uh, around the fund. I mean, it's a very very specialist focus fund. So we're not just talking sports focus, which in itself is a a niche. We're talking women's sports within that. Do you think that that actual specialist and more focused fund helps you achieve better returns just as an invest as an investor than say a general uh, in a more general uh, investment fund? I think uh, you can drive probably just as strong returns around a specialized fund as a non-specialized fund just kind of depends on what you're doing. But I think specifically Kara and I can probably drive the best returns around this fund, around this sort of focused thesis where we feel like we both have deep expertise, just a really deep network of relationships um, and real um, viewpoints of how to drive strong returns in the space. Um, so we feel like because we wake up a living, breathing, thinking uh, women's sports, uh, we just have 
very deep relationships in this space. We kind of, you know, when something's, when someone's out looking to raise capital, uh, Monarch's almost always coming up and people are reaching out to us. So um, I feel like that specialization definitely sort of helps for us in our situation, but uh, not to say that there aren't uh, many incredible generalist funds that uh, will drive great returns as well. One thing that I wanted to kind of dive into um, a little bit without putting you on the spot too much is is piggybacking off of the NWSL Boston team and kind of what you talked about with the WSL. You guys have obviously been set up as a fund to look at, almost by definition, you will be a multi-club um, owner. And there's been a lot of uh, there's been a lot of controversy, at least on this side of the pond, uh, recently over multi-club uh, ownership models uh, and kind of the impact on European competitions and and stuff like that. We've seen the we've seen the first foray um, into uh, into uh, dual ownership, obviously, with uh, Michelle Kang being uh, the founder of the Washington Spirit and also um, buying into the London Lionesses in the championship just under the the Barclays Women's Super League. Um, now, you know, you've already said that you're looking actively into the space, so I hope I'm not putting you too much on, on the spot here, but do you see any uh, similar challenges in terms of multi-club ownership in the women's uh, in the women's sports space, in women's football, and how are you guys approaching those conversations that you are having uh, on this side of the pond, whether it's in the WSL or the championship or other European um, uh, European leagues? So we are sort of multi-club technically and that we'll make multiple team investments alongside our investments in leagues or rights. Um, but I'd say we're multi-club in a very different way than, say, city football group where they're trying to have sort of consolidated football operations and thinking and then, um, you know, different sort of tiers of, of how they're moving talent and things like that. Uh, I'd say that's kind of the opposite of what we're doing at Monarch, not just, you know, I think that's a model that will work. I think that's, you know, sort of the way Michelle's thinking about it in, in what she's building. But for us, it's much more about thinking about where can we go and engage and really move the commercial opportunity forward. So how do we help to, build a larger fan base, build a better game day experience, uh, attract uh, better brands and overall sort of drive revenue and monetization for the clubs where we get involved. Um, and then staying outside of the sporting side of things um, pretty intentionally. Um, you know, in the NWSL, for example, we're a minority shareholder in the Boston NWSL club, and we have the right to go and be a minority shareholder in other NWSL clubs. But as a part of that, we really can't get involved in anything happening on the sporting side. And um, I think that's fine because that's not, not where Kara and I bring the most expertise to the table. Uh, we really bring that more on the uh, commercial and monetization side of things. So, yeah, I'd say we're multi-club in a sense, but um, a very different model uh, of, of how we go about that. So let's talk a little bit about the the Boston NWSL team and and kind of how that came about. Um, when when did you when did you hear about it? What stage of Monarch was was it at? Um, had you already did you earmark that immediately as the first kind of shall we say anchor investment that you wanted to make? Um, how did you how did you find the partners? Take us through the journey. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so. Yeah, we were sort of involved in the Boston NWSL journey from the very early days. So as the founding group was coming together and deciding, is this actually something we want to pursue to go and try to bid on an expansion franchise? 
uh, Kara and I were having conversations with them, helping them think through, you know, what should we expect for a business model? Like, how did this work for Angel City? Kind of all these questions that might be helpful. And we've kind of think about, you know, how can we go and do that for anyone who's interested in being involved in women's sports? Like, we're always happy to kind of talk to anyone and just give advice or our perspective um, to the extent it helps to advance the uh, opportunity uh, and market dynamics in women's sports. Um, and so it really started that way, just kind of friendly advice. Um, and as they moved deeper into the process of the NWSL expansion, where the league was evaluating a number of different cities and ownership groups, um, and it became clear that they were getting to the point where uh, they would be one of the groups who were selected for that. Um, they came to us and said, hey, like, thanks for all this help and advice you've been giving, but actually we'd love to make that a little bit more formal. Would you be interested in investing? Um, and I think the, the good news about it kind of evolving in that way is that we got to, you know, we'd already spent six months spending time with uh, the founding team. We saw the incredible things that they accomplished, including like getting the whole mayor and city of Boston lined up around a stadium in Boston proper, which um, will be the first soccer stadium uh, in Boston proper. Uh, they, you know, we got to see them uh, really start to have early conversations with brands and build those relationships, um, see how the founding team kind of worked and collaborated together. Um, and so it was a great space when they said, hey, are you interested in investing? You know, as we were looking at other opportunities uh, for investing with the fund, we thought, you know, this is really the perfect first investment. Um, and so it was really, uh, we were excited to, that they, uh, asked and, um, yeah, we're excited to, to be partnering with them. It's been a really fun journey so far. And how involved are you in the, um, in, in the building of the team that's going to run the commercial side of, of the franchise, shall we say? Um, because obviously I presume some of the founding team will remain, um, in position, um, uh, going forwards, but obviously there's going to be a huge building exercise uh, leading to 2026. So how much do you guys get involved in, and especially with that point that you mentioned being top of mind, diversity of thought, diversity of culture, diversity of, um, you know, underrepresented groups as well, which I presume you want to translate through everything. Yes, absolutely. We think that's uh, important in the cap table, but also really important in the leadership um, and operating team. And so, yeah, I'd say uh, when we think about where we can add value as a fund, one of the places that we always like to engage is around talent. Um, so, you know, whenever we're talking to folks who are excited about women's sports, we're saying, you know, refer us the best candidates that you, that are in your networks that are excited about women's sports. And we have a really deep talent pipeline built out um, such that, you know, when the Boston NWSL team goes out to hire a head of sponsorships. We already have a list of people that were like, here are some people who we think would be interested in this role and that you should go start having conversations with. Um, and so I think um, hopefully we at Monarch can be a bridge across talent, great talent that wants to operate in women's sports, whether they're coming from men's sports or media or real estate or wherever it might be. Um, and the teams and leagues looking to hire both within the teams where we're invested, but also just, again, across the network at large. I think like building, uh, getting top quality talent to focus their time, energy, and attention on women's sports is one of the most important things that can happen to, to make this ecosystem work. Uh, and so we, we love engaging in that way and hopefully contributing to representation across the women's sports ecosystem as well. And Jasmine, you've had a big sort of tech background as well. 
And obviously, you've looked at a lot of tech companies in your in your past from an investment point of view. Um, a lot of people have looked at women's sports as an opportunity to often be more innovative than maybe sometimes has been in on uh, the male counterparts side in terms of, you know, there's great great uh, growth opportunity, opportunity to do something different, build a brand in a, in a different way. How are you looking at the opportunity to bring more innovation into uh, either existing um, properties that you're looking at or indeed properties that are a bit earlier in stage and actually how they can bring innovation as part of their sort of core DNA uh, as part of what they're doing? I think there's definitely so much room for innovation in women's sports, both first because you're serving a much younger fan demographic. Um, so the average women's sports fan is in their early 30s. Um, that fan is just much more apt to uh, adopt new technologies and engages in like a team needs to show up in a different way to attract, uh, engage and retain those fans. Um, so I think it's a great space for innovation on that front. But then also because a lot of these organizations are just smaller than their male counterparts, um, you know, the opportunity to take a risk and say, hey, actually, we're going to structure our sponsorship model a little bit differently. And we're not putting $100 million at risk to do that. We're putting, you know, $10 million at risk. And so we're willing to be a little bit more to try something new and see if it works. And so I do think women's sports is going to be the space that, you know, not only new technology is is tested, built and scaled, but also where sort of net new business models and uh, fan engagement opportunities and things like that are, are created as well. Um, so I think that's one of the things that's really uh, fun about the space is we don't have to you know, we like to lean on knowing what's worked and what's not in the past, but we don't necessarily assume that's what's going to work, you know, going forward in women's sports, because it really is, um, you know, opportunity to think differently and build um, sustainable uh, pillars of, of local communities for decades to come. And and so are you looking to, oh, sorry, I, I, we might be asking the same question. <laughs> are, are you looking to wrap that into uh, the investment opportunities that you look at with Monarch, that is to look at technology and the application of technology uh, as to how it can help scale um, uh, the properties that you're uh, that you're investing in and how it can apply differently to women's sport uh, as opposed to men's sport or first in women's sport and then rolled out to, to, to men's sport? Yes, we are looking at making investments in sort of pure play tech companies. But I think the space where we do kind of lean in a little bit more to that innovation is the things that we do around rights. Um, so we are spending a lot of time thinking about like, you know, if we think media rights are going to be really valuable in women's sports in the long run, which we obviously do, uh, <clears throat> how should we, like, what is the ideal like media and viewing experience for a women's sports team? And if there's a way to go and buy rights and then test out some technology that sits alongside of those rights. That's a good example of the way we would engage with technology. So I think it's really always sort of rights have to be at the core of it if we're doing something um, in the tech space. But I think there will be a lot of ways that technology kind of dovetails with those opportunities um, and ways we'll might, you know, end up building one or two net new companies um, either on our own or in collaboration with other startups or even uh, large-scale uh, sports operating entities. Was that what you were going to ask, Charlie? Did I usurp your question? Of course you did. 
totally. <laughs> My apologies. Um, so, uh, so then, Jasmine, moving, um, moving, moving on from that, and looking um, a little bit more at the, uh, the the macro market and kind of what you're seeing. You've obviously you've come from Causeway and you came from 2023, which I think everybody described as as a uh, as a bit of a bear market. Um, a lot of people kept powder dry and kind of sat back while the financial market sort of restabilized. Um, where are you seeing um, uh, the market in, in 2024? And uh, when when can we expect another exciting announcement from Monarch? <laughs> yeah, uh, I think it's interesting because, you know, watching what's happening in sort of more of the tech side of the venture ecosystem, I'd say there's a very big disconnect from that and sort of what's happening in the women's sports operating space. Like, I'd say that I feel mm. like over the course of the last 12 months, probably more deals have been done in women's sports by like three or five X than any other year as compared to tech where it's sort of dramatically, dramatically down. So I'd say the the pace of change is fast in women's sports just because uh, the the rate of growth is so high. Um, and so we're seeing lots of really interesting deals and, and just trying to be really disciplined around how does this fit our thesis and knowing that we're only going to make, you know, six or so investments. Uh, should this be one of those six and should we be making it today and not five years from now? So, um, yeah, I think uh, the market's moving quickly. And, um, you know, I think the counterbalance to that, though, is a lot of the opportunities that we're working on. Um, are a little bit more complex than going and funding uh, a tech company. So it's often, um, you know, we'll often be working, talking with a league or a team for 12 months, 18 months uh, before opportunities will come to pass or building a thesis around rights and trying to line up the right talent and rights dynamics to get it done. Um, so I'd say at any given time, we're kind of working on, you know, four to five big thesis areas that have a number of deals underneath them. Um, and then I think like the actual time to get it done, we'll be patient to, to make sure that we're finding the right thing in that right market and the right dynamics uh, that, that we think uh, lead to growth. So I think probably another in, in, uh, announcement here in the next couple of months, but uh, yeah. Exciting. Looking forward to that. Um, so, so what does that mean for you from a volume perspective? Um, uh, because, you know, from, from, from the tech ecosystem, I presume that, you know, you were getting pitch stuff, you know, maybe 20 things, 20 things a day, you know, just stuff constantly pumping through. Um, what, what you, what you're looking at is, is obviously a growth space, but there's probably a relatively finite number of investments at this stage, uh, that I are, that are either appealing or that you want to track. Right. So how, how do the two compare, um, on a sort of day to day, week to week basis? Yeah, it's definitely much smaller in volume than looking at the tech ecosystem. I think there's just a, mm. a much broader set of opportunities there. But also, for now. For now. <laughs> um, and, but also a much broader number of investors looking at them as well. Um, so I think the way we see this market is that there are, you know, solidly probably like 50 opportunities that are just out there that are really interesting investment opportunities for us that we should sort of see if there's the right way to do it. Um, and then another sort of 10 to 15, like thesis driven ideas of things that we might really sort of catalyze to make them happen. Um, so it's nice in that I think I don't spend a lot of my time thinking about 
how do I make sure I'm seeing everything that's happening in this space? I think we very much see everything that's happening. And now it's how do we set up the stakeholder dynamics in the right way? And how do we make sure that if we're getting involved with this team, we're setting up incentives and the cap table right, and we're all aligned on vision and strategy so that we want to move forward. Um, So it's a lot more of kind of creating the right opportunity and being the catalyst for it rather than um, just seeing something that there's already a a nice bow around that you can go and, and invest in. So does that change the way that, for example, you run your investment committee or the way that you do your due diligence, if you're comparing that to how you would have operated at things like a place somewhere like Causeway, for example? I mean, the dynamics difference, does, does that feed through into the operations of the fund differently as well? Yeah, it does. I think uh, it just means that sort of the deal cycle is much longer. And so you're really like building relationships much longer before you're uh, getting to a, a an opportunity where we actually want to invest. Um, And it also means that we're probably a little bit more willing to to go into something where it's like, you know, we think this is a great opportunity, but actually there's some pretty big changes operationally that need to happen to go and capture that opportunity. And because we want to be so much more sort of hands-on as as investors and operators, we can say, you know, oh, we actually feel like we need to hire like three new members of the senior management team because there hasn't been capital around the table to do that in the past. And, you know, we think that there's actually like a number of, you know, commercial deals that were done that weren't really the right way to think about them in the past. And so we need to wait for those deals to expire and help them to go and catalyze the right kinds of deals next time. Um, So I think where at Causeway, we would really think about, let's make sure that all the dynamics are really sort of set and buttoned up already uh, before we invest. We're much more happy to be like, how can we be sort of hands-on collaborators, thought partners around uh, getting this team league rights opportunity to the next level? Does does that also mean that you have a a um, greater flexibility around what you look for in founders, given that founders may have either a certain bundle of rights or a franchise or an exclusivity? that means that other competitors can't come and, uh, and butt against them. But at the same time, you know that you have the ability to shape the leadership team in a way to capitalize on it if the founders themselves aren't, uh, uh, aren't quite up to scratch compared to what you would have done in, a tech, in the tech world. Yeah, I think that's probably right, provided the founders eager to have that collaboration and partnership to do that. Um, you know, we oh, they always are. <laughs> You know, if someone wants to be leading the charge and we think, you know, that might not be the right person, then we probably still aren't getting involved. But um, yeah, I think it does create a little bit more flexibility. And mm-hmm. and I think uh, on balance, like finding the operators that can really win and succeed in this space, I think it's, you know, probably even more complex to operate in terms of stakeholder dynamics at, you know, a sports team versus a startup. Like, you know, I think of Jennifer Epstein, the lead owner in our Boston NWSL club and the way she is building relationships with the owners across all of the NWSLs, you know, trying to build the fan base, building a management team, manage relationships with athletes and a coaching staff. Those are really very distinct and different types of people to engage with, get them excited to follow you and and, and really like make all of those threads come together. So I think it takes like a really incredible, unique leader to, to do that. And so it's great to see um, her as well as some other great leaders like that across the uh, women's sports ecosystem. 
Well, it's certainly very exciting times and an exciting thesis. Um, uh, uh, as you know, we at Sportsoft are huge believers in in women's sports, not just in terms of the uh, the, the performance, but also the commercial uh, possibilities. So, really fantastic to see you doing this. Just uh, just before we go, what would your message be to listeners around the investability and commercial potential uh, of of women's sports? I mean, I. Uh, never thought I'd leave Causeway and kind of only did because I felt like this moment today in women's sports was like uh, the highest ROI investment opportunity I was seeing out there. Like, I just really feel like it is such at a unique moment where um, in the right opportunities, there's great downside protection, but incredible returns will be generated, but it's going to take a lot of hard work to get there. Um, so I'd say, you know, we get really excited when there are other investors who want to come into this ecosystem who are also excited to roll up their sleeves and bring their expertise to the table to get these businesses built. Um, And I would say to great operating talent out there who's excited and and authentically passionate about what's happening in women's sports, I think um, there's so much opportunity to dive in, chart new course, take on Uh, a lot for those who can do it. And so um, we're always happy to hear from other investors who want to, you know, want our help thinking through an opportunity, but also talent that's excited about moving into women's sports. And uh, we can share why we think that could be a great next career move as well. Well, super exciting times. Watch this space. uh, And we can't wait to hear the uh, next exciting announcements from Monarch Collective, hopefully soon on this side of the pond as well. All that remains for me is to say a big thank you to uh, our listeners. Uh, as ever, make sure you subscribe and give us a like wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, go to the website, sportsoft.co, and sign up for our newsletter. And follow us on social at sportsofthq. So to wrap up today, big thank you to the fabulous Charlie Greenwood for joining us and helping us manage this conversation. Charlie, good to chat to you again. Absolutely. And Jasmine, uh, some of that stuff was absolutely brilliant. I think there's some some great nuggets in there as well for people. So thank you so much. We'll make sure to share all of that on social as well. Jasmine, thank you so much for joining us. All the best of luck to Monarch Collective, though we know you don't need it. It's going to be awesome. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Such a fun conversation. All right. And to all of those who are listening, thank you so much for joining us. And we'll see you next time in the Sports Loft. Goodbye.